Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. And as usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 19, The Mongol Invasion. Thanks for listening in. So last time out, we checked in with Ogaday Khan, Genghis's son and successor, and covered a mini-succession crisis in the princedom of Vladimir, which saw Yuri II eventually come out on top. And then we finished off with the Battle of the Kalka River in 1223, which saw the Mongol generals, Subutai and Jebe, defeat the Rus coalition, featuring the three Mustislavs, but not Yuri II. And then we witnessed the victorious Mongol army ride off back to Mongolia, whilst those of the Rus that had escaped slunk back to their homes in Chernigov, Kiev and Halic. This week we're going to look at the reasons why the Rus lost at the Kalka River, and also cover how that defeat impacted the collective Rus mindset or psyche. Or, on the other hand, perhaps didn't. And then finally we'll cover what the Mongols decided to do 14 years later in 1237. And for those of you who haven't worked that out yet, the clue is in the title. Before we start though, I've got a couple of bits of admin to run through. And first off, sources. And here I'm not talking about Worcester sauce, Heinz tomato ketchup or Coleman's English mustard. Up to the year 1113, the key source for much of what we've covered was Nestor's Primary Chronicle. And so based on where we currently are, we've had over about, well, around 100 years of flying blind. Well, that's not strictly true. Because since that time, and for some time ahead, there are three other main Rus or Slavic chronicles that together with various Mongol, Arab and Byzantine sources provide much of the basis of Rus history during this period. We have the Chronicle of Novgorod, which was put together in the second half of the 13th century, covers the years 1016 up to 1471 and was put together by monks at the Uriev Monastery in Novgorod. Hence the Novgorod Chronicle. Then we have the Galician Volnian Chronicle, covering the years 1201 up till 1292. And this was written from the perspective of the Princedom of Halic and probably written by a prominent boyar. And lastly, we have the Hypatian Codex, which is a kind of compendium of three other chronicles, the Primary, Kievan and the Galician Volnian. Okay, so now that's tidied up, a little bit of marketing. So if any of you want to get in touch, 
with the podcast with a comment or a question. There are a number of ways you can do it. And I'd really love to hear from you. You could leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, or you could follow the podcast on whichever channel you listen in on the podcast website. For example, historyofrussia.podbean.com, where you can also leave a comment and take a look at some timelines, which I need to update, by the way, and some maps. And then finally, there's Twitter, at HistoryRussia1, or the more traditional email route, where you can find me at NordicWorld, at outlook.com. And why Nordic World? Well, prior to this podcast, I did have a sort of a general podcast on the Nordic countries, a bit of history, geography, demographics, uh, and that featured the countries of Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Iceland. Now, I've paused that at the moment, but at some point in the future, my intention is to carry it on. But you know what they say about good intentions. Okay, Pokhaya! So, let's take a step back and look at the myriad reasons as to why the Battle of the Kalka River in 1223 turned out in the way it did. And just in case you're wondering, the aim of this is not just to reflect on what we covered last week, but to identify if any of those reasons had a direct cause on what would happen in the year 1237. So first off, and I guess most importantly, why did the Rus lose and the Mongols win, but then depart? Well, as we've seen over the past few episodes, and ever since the demise of Kievan authority back in the early to mid-1100s, the Rus state was far from being a strong united entity. Effectively split into a dozen different princedoms, with nominal control being exercised only recently from Vladimir, and even there they've just experienced a succession crisis, there was neither the interest, certainly not in the north, or probably the ability to put up a united front against the Mongols. The alliance was, that was put together was tenuous at best, and was an entirely southern moose construct that only really included the princes of Kiev, Chernigov and Halych. There was no interest from the princedoms further north, to the extent that Yuri II of Vladimir even though he was invited, either decided not to turn up or just couldn't be bothered to attend. I mean, why should he be? What was in it for him? He was no friend of Mrsislav the Bold. They'd fought against each other back in 1216 during the succession crisis. And anyway, this whole cuman mongol thing was having no impact upon his lands whatsoever. He probably thought too that the Mongols were just another bunch of nomads from the east, and that they'd be a bit of a nuisance and then disappear, which is, I suppose, what happened. But I don't think it was just Yuri who thought like this. Even though the alliance heeded the danger when the enemy were on the banks of the Dnieper River, did they really know anything about the Mongols' previous exploits, and how they'd conquered pretty much every territory, kingdom or empire that had stood in their way? We can't know for certain. But I think the Rus massively underestimated their latest enemy from the east, and this was despite the warnings from the Cumans, who certainly had more experience of what fighting against the Mongols actually meant. Then of course you have to consider, were the Cumans the kind of people you wanted fighting on your side? And the answer to that is, no, not really. They'd proved over the decades that any kind of alliance was going to be short-lived, but then I suppose that the Cumans probably felt the same way about the Rus. But the Cumans needed somebody to help them, 
Most of the eastern portion of the lands had been taken after they had misjudged the Mongols during the initial battles fought when Subutai and Jebe had emerged from the Caucasus. And it just so happened that the Rus were pretty much the only people they could turn to, despite their en- enmity, <laughs> I can never say that word, towards one another during, and I'm doing air quotes at the moment, normal times. But I suppose hindsight is a wonderful thing, and the Rus were not to know that the Mongols would be able to smash through the Cumans when they escaped the initial encirclement, or that they would run away when the going got tough at the Kalka River. And whilst we're talking about hindsight, a word I'm going to be using a lot in the next couple of minutes, there was an opportunity for the fighting not to have taken place at all, as remember, the Mongols had basically told the Rus that they weren't interested in fighting them or taking their lands. All they wanted was to take as much human territory as they could and then get back to Mongolia. But the Rus by this stage were certain of victory, certain that their allies would hold up and certain that they had the numbers, which in hindsight they didn't. And I really believe that this was a mischance to avoid conflict and again in hindsight avoid showing the Mongols how weak and disunited they actually were particularly as when the encirclement looked like it was going to work. The Rus strategy and chain of command broke down and all of it became a bit of a free-for-all, allowing the Mongols to escape, with the Rus then charging after them, thinking that victory was certain. And I'm pretty sure that the Mongols made a mental note of all of this for the future. Then finally we have two further more tangible factors to consider, and they are Mongol tactics and leadership, and Mongol fighting prowess. Subutai and Jebe were two of the most formidable Mongol generals and had years of military and diplomatic experience under their belts. Plus they also had a large degree of autonomy when it came to decision making, as did all Mongol commanders, which is just as well really because Genghis was thousands of miles away. They commanded battle-hardened and resolute troops who were born horsemen and who were divided into two main bodies. Firstly, light cavalry armed with bows, and secondly, heavy cavalry armed with spears or lances. Now most of the time, the use of the former, the, the ones with bows, was enough. Such was, the prowess, such was their prowess as archers, and then the latter would simply be called in to mop up. The Rus, on the other hand, whilst they were excellent horsemen, preferred to do their fighting on foot, and this is one of the main reasons why they were at such a disadvantage at the Kalka River. The other factor is that the Mongols had chosen just the right time to stop their flight eastwards, right at the point when the Rus vanguard had crossed the Kalka, but when the main Rus army was still crossing or about to cross. And this feigned retreat and the drawing in of opposing forces into a trap was something that the Mongols had successfully used on many previous occasions. But here I'm not entirely convinced they used it. There is the possibility that they were genuinely trying to escape and outrun the Rus, and then discovering that this wasn't going to work, they decided that to stand and fight was the only realistic option. Either way, and whatever they had planned, it worked. So for all of those reasons, the Rus lost at the Kalka and the Mongols won. But not only did the Mongols win the battle, they also managed to obtain vital information regarding Rus' military effectiveness, leadership and battle tactics, 
items that were surely going to be discussed in detail when they made it back to Mongolia. And surely the Rus would undertake a similar exercise. Mstislav the Bold would spread the word about the Mongols, their tactics and ways of fighting with his counterparts in the other princedoms, defences would be prepared and a solid pan-Rus alliance formed. So with all of that in mind, let's take a look at what did happen after the battle. Well, the Rus carried on exactly as they had done before their first contact with the Mongols. They did absolutely nothing to bolster their defences, improve their battle techniques or strengthen their princely ties. Probably because even five years after the Battle of Kalka River, there was no sign or whisper of the Mongols. And so they settled back into round after round of internal feuding, and when they weren't doing that, they turned their attention westwards, looking for alliances and trading opportunities, and sometimes fighting with the increasingly powerful states that were flexing their muscles, like Hungary, Poland and Lithuania. Mstislav the Bold died in 1228. Yuri II of Vladimir seems to have spent most of his time engaged in fighting, either his fellow princes, specifically in Novgorod and Kiev, or leading incursion, incursions against the Volga Bulgars and the Livonians. Collectively then, the Rus seem to have put the whole Mongol thing down to a bad day at the office, and consigned it to those parts of their minds where no recognition or thinking took place. A bit like my mind does when I've got something particularly difficult to do, like renewing my passport or sorting out a new mortgage deal and hoping that something, anything, will come along and make it all go away. Anyway, enough about me. Meanwhile, over in Mongolia, Genghis and his son Jochi have both died. Ogadai has become the great Khan, and as we touched on last week, when he's not knocking back huge glasses of wine, He's either making changes to the governance of his realm or sending his generals on campaigns to Afghanistan, China and Korea. Tackling the Rus is way down on his list of things to do. There's a slight problem though, in that just like the Rus of the late 11th and early 12th centuries, there are more and more senior members of the Mongol nobility who want land and something useful to do. And one of those is Batu Khan, son of Jokchi, and therefore grandson of Genghis. Batu was born in around 1205, and by the late 1220s was proving himself to be a chip off the old family block, doing well in campaigns in both China and in the region of the Ural River, further west. Unlike his uncle Ogadai, Batu had a volatile, some say a nasty side to him, and according to Giovanni Da Pian del Capine, an Italian diplomat who had spent some time around the Mongols. Batu was kind enough to his own people, but he's greatly feared by them. He is, however, most cruel in a fight. He is very shrewd and extremely crafty in warfare, for he has been waging war for a long time. And then, apropos of absolutely nothing, he went on to add that Batu's entire face was covered with reddish spots. As befitted his station, Batu had been given extensive lands, basically everything to the west of the Volga River, i.e. the western lands that Subutai and Jeba had conquered during their marathon sojourn in the early 1220s. And whilst on the surface this grant of, surface, this grant of lands seemed generous, in reality it represented something of a disappointment. 
The territory was literally thousands of miles away. It was right on the edge of the Mongol Empire and half of it didn't even belong to the Mongols. But chafing at the bit and keen to up his profile, Batu badgered his uncle Ogade to give him an army to lead on a campaign to his lands and eventually Ogade acquiesced. But I get the feeling that Batu wasn't completely trusted or completely competent because Ogade sent one of his best generals to accompany the younger Khan. Yep, Subutai was heading west again, and there is no doubt in my mind that if he had still been alive, Jebe would have also been part of the campaign. But unfortunately, he had died not long after Kalka River. On the other hand, I guess, Ogade may have sent Subutai because of his experience and knowledge and because he wanted the campaign to be a success for his young nephew. Anyhow, it's 1237, and the Mongols, between 25,000 and 40,000 horsemen strong, led by Batu and Subutai, are making their way westwards. In October of the same year, just as the real cold was setting in, they crossed the Volga River and invaded Volga, Bulgaria. And a month later, all forms of Bulgarian resistance had been quashed and the invaders also found the time to subjugate the Cumans and Alans who had escaped from them in 1222 and 1223. In November, Batu sent his envoys to the court of Yuri II of Vladimir and demanded his submission. But this Yuri refused to do. Bad, bad move. And so a month later, the Mongols besieged the city of Ryazan, and after six days of bloody fighting, the city was totally annihilated and its inhabitants slaughtered. And in fact, so bad was the devastation that the city was abandoned, and the modern-day city of the same name is about 35 miles away from the original location. And according to the Novgorod Chronicle, the Tatars took Ryazan on December the 21st. They likewise killed the men, women, children, monks, nuns and priests, some by fire, some by the sword, and violated nuns, priests' wives, good women and girls in the presence of their mothers and sisters. So realising that he'd been sent a pretty blunt message, Yuri dispatched his sons eastwards, but they arrived after Riazan had been destroyed, and then in an ensuing fight with the Mongols, they were defeated and had to run for their lives. Then the Mongols burnt down the settlements of Kolomna and Moscow and they caught up with Yuri's sons and before you ask their names, they're not mentioned, defeated them again and on February the 4th, 1238, they laid siege to Vladimir. And three days later, the city was taken and burnt to the ground. Yuri had managed to escape northwards across the Volga towards Yaroslavl, but the rest of the royal family who had stayed in the citadel perished in the flames. About a month later, Yuri and his brothers Yaroslav and Sviatoslav had managed to raise an army, and they turned back towards Vladimir, hoping against hope to relieve the city before the Mongols took it. But they were too late. The city was in ruins, and the Mongols were nowhere to be seen. So Yuri then sent out a small force of soldiers to scout out where the Mongols were. But they returned a couple of hours later with the news that the entire Rus army was surrounded. 
And so realising that the game was up, Yuri made a dash for it with a few hundred horsemen, and he managed to escape, but he was soon overtaken by Mongol riders, and on March the 4th, near the banks of the Sit River, their entire force was destroyed, and Yuri was amongst those who fell. Batu then divided his army into smaller units, sent each of them to different areas of the Rus' heartland, and before long, 14 minor cities had been ransacked. Batu himself rode towards Veliki Novgorod, but the prince and the citizens wisely decided to surrender, and the city was spared. In mid-1238, the Khan devastated the Crimea, and in the winter of 1239, he sacked Chernigov and Pereslav, and then after many days of siege, in December 1240, Kiev fell. And so in just over three years, and with a relatively small force of between 25 and 40,000 men, Batu had completely and utterly defeated the Ruskaya Zemla, and this time the Mongols were here to stay, albeit with a brief intermission, which we'll, which we'll cover next week. Okay, after all of that excitement, we'll end it there this time. Next time, we'll check out what Batu did next, look at what the occupation meant for the Rus, and see how one Rus noble in particular made a name for himself, although perhaps not in the way that you probably think he did. So until next time, stay safe, look after yourselves as always, and I'll see you all soon.